hello, and welcome to the About to Interview podcast. I'm your host, that guy named John. This is a supplemental version of the About to Interview podcast, which drops every Wednesday and covers movies, TV shows, film festivals, and more. You can follow the podcast on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at About to Review. And make sure to subscribe on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blueberry, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. This show focuses solely on the conversations that I have with authors, directors, actors, and creators, and is available on YouTube as well as subscribing to the podcast. Make sure to click the subscribe button below, give a thumbs up, and check out the full show notes with links to the guests at abouttoreview.com. Joining me now is the one and only, the man, the myth, the voice. He is an actor, a stand-up comedian, voiceover legend, improv master, and so much more. Welcome to the show. Very happy to have you, Mr. Phil Lamar. Thank you, John. Um, although I do have to, just for the record, uh, since you know this will be put onto gold records and sent into space with Voyager, mm-hmm. um, correct you. Uh, I have not done stand-up. I do not do stand-up. I'm deathly afraid of stand-up. Oh, right. Um, uh, I am an improviser, and Mm -hmm. I've done sketch, so I guess I'm a sketch comedian. It's funny, because a lot of times people will just lump all comedy in together. Like, (laughs) oh, I saw you on that sitcom. You funny. You should come do some of your comedy. Like, (laughs) do you have a set and costumes? Because that's the kind of comedy I do. Right. (laughs) but uh, but yeah, and I mean, stand-up comics, I have a lot of friends who do stand-up. I mean, that is a craft. That is something wholly unto itself. Improv is theater. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's group theater, but, it's, you know, and again, I know a handful of people who can do, you know, stand-up, sketch, and improv, but it's very, they're very few and far between. Gotcha. So I do apologize for lumping you into that that category, but you know, you you deserve it because you are incredible in everything that you do. So especially for... especially my uh, pedanticness. <laughs> right. So for anybody listening who, uh, for whatever reason, has been living under a rock for the past, uh, let's say twenty some odd, thirty some odd <laughs> years, uh, you might know Phil Lamar from such things as a little TV show that was huge in the 90s called Mad TV. And then, of course, I am not even going to attempt to list your voiceover work, but projects (laughs) like Justice League, where you played Green Lantern, which was incredible. Things like Samurai Jack, one of my Mm. favorite cartoons of all time. Uh, Futurama and just... There you go. Yeah. Uh, if you go to Phil Lamar's IMDb page, which I will link in the show notes, just peruse through the over 350 acting credits. Wow. So, yeah, that that is it, insane. It, ad- it adds up over time. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the first things that I wanted to talk to you about is mm-hmm. when we were growing up, the term that is very popular right now, the term blur or black nerd, did not exist. Any of us who were brown, black, mixed, we were the outliers of the outliers when it came to geek culture. Mm -hmm. So what was it like for you to navigate through those situations 
before being a black nerd was cool? Um, you mean before being a black nerd, like, you know, in a social context was, I mean, it didn't exist. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, and the, the weird thing about it was, um, you were basically just sort of a nerd. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, um, without the internet, um, the subsection of person of color within the realm of whatever kind of nerddom you would have been in was so small mm -hmm. that it really didn't bear categorization, hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so in that respect, in most respects, it wasn't an issue in the sense that mm, it wasn't acknowledged, right. you know? You know, it wasn't like anybody was saying, hey, black guy, you can't come in our comic book store, mm -hmm. you know, um, but the the problem that it, it held at the time was there was no thought to, you know, fan service for minorities within a geekdom. Right. You know, and to a large extent, there there still aren't. I mean comic books are one of the few industries that is addressing it. I mean, mm -hmm. geek industry, geek industries, I mean, right. Right. And I, th and I think that's largely because of the mainstreaming of comic books. Mm -hmm. Um, but you don't, you still don't hear a lot about, you know, brothers who love Tolkien, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it just, it's, it's still not a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, although what's, I guess really these days, the only time it, it comes up is, again, when things get mainstreamed, when um, Hunger Games, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the character that's described in the book, you know, um, is put on, sc on screen as a person of color. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden people are like, what? What's going on? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think because I, you know, I've been a comic book reader since way back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, and I played D and D, um, what else? Uh, read science fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we were always aware of it, mm -hmm. you know, um, there's, you know, the, the famous story of, uh, Nichelle Nichols and Martin Luther King Jr. Right. You've heard that one, right? Mm -hmm. Where he told her she needed to stay on the show. Yeah. <laughs> Because we need because to be able to see that there were people of color in the future. And that was exactly. something that before that, it was like, ah, no, by then we have dealt with that situation. As opposed right. to being like, mm, no, we need to see representation, both not only mm -hmm. of a person of color, but a woman of color in mm -hmm. space. Right. And because of, you know. Her, and, and not cleaning. Right. She was not the space janitor. If you look at those 50s movies, mm -hmm. you know, 50 science fiction of the future, ain't nobody. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. You know? Klaatu Nick Barakta or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. That that was the only African in that entire world. Mm, right. Was, was whatever that alien was saying. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it you just, know? when you get people like Nichelle Nichols having that representation, then in the real world, you have Dr. Mae Jameson became the first african-american woman in space because she grew up seeing an african-american woman in space right right you know although it's it's funny because it's kind of a wonder that any black people grew up to make comics 
you know, of my generation because all you had were the blacks. Yep. <laughs> like all the characters who had black in their name. Yep. There's always that qualifier. <laughs> black lightning. Black Panther. Black Goliath. Black Racer. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. As if, as if you know, comic books are not in color and they could not see that. They're like, no, no, we need, to, we need to make sure. We need to make sure nobody has any questions. Like, no, this is Black Racer. Like, right. Cool. I, I can see that. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Although, you know, I once heard a really funny story. Um, I met uh, Neil Adams oh, at wow. a convention, and I went up to introduce myself to him. And I introduced him saying, uh, I've done the voice of a character that you helped create, John mm-hmm. Stewart. Absolutely. And, he's, and he said, you know, and he went on to tell me the story of how he had to fight to get John Stewart's name. Like, hmm. they, they, he had pushback on the name. What? It's, like, it's 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 not a black name, Neil. Oh, <laughs> they they wanted something like Lincoln Jefferson or some kind of you know wow. thing like that. And uh, what was the other thing? Oh, this was the this was the thing that really really cracked me up. Um, he got pushback on his color. Hmm. Uh, because you know they um you know they send in the color you know he he drew the the art the artwork right. in black and white and then he did the codes for, you know, what oh, he, how right, he right. wanted it colored. Mm-hmm. And apparently at that time, the, um, the colors they had for, you know, what we now call African-Americans was this sort of grayish tone. Great. And when he, when he said that, I kind of remembered like, oh yeah, yeah. Like there was like a Sergeant Rock and there was a black soldier and he did not look <laughs> like a healthy Brown. Mm-mm. Look like stone. <laughs> right. And, and Neil's like, okay, I'm going to make my black character look like a black man. And he put, you know, like a, a healthy brown. And they're like, no, 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 no. You can't color him brown. People will be insulted. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? So I, I'm glad that we were able to, to move past that. But I can definitely see, I mean, because right. I came in to that you know, modern age of comics, the bronze age of comics in the eighties and nineties. Right. When at least there started to be more of it. And, Mm. you know, without those qualifiers, I mean, right. Seeing Bishop, you know, for the first time in the X-Men. Yeah. Like that was incredible. And then going through and finding, once I started collecting and seeing Mm. blade, you know, and tomb of Dracula. So, yeah, it, it is incredible the steps that we have taken, and it is also incredible the steps that we still need to take. Well, it's funny because I've been involved with the um, the Dwayne McDuffie Award for uh, Diversity in Comics. Awesome. Um, since its inception. And um, d- the motto of the award, and this is something Dwayne wrote, was from invisibility to inevitability. Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think it's definitely possible, but it's it takes time. It's incremental, you know, that sort of change. And it's about normalization, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a step toward it. The fact that Blade was not Black Van Helsing. Right. <laughs> you know, he was Blade, mm-hmm. you know, um, and Bishop wasn't like as part of the black mutants. <laughs> the black delegation know? of mutants has chosen Bishop. <laughs> right. You know, and, and it, it grew out of, I believe, you know, the generation before had no experience 
with it. They were writing things mm-hmm. they didn't know. Yeah. You know, and they were, it was like translating from a second, you know, into a second language. But, you know, the, the people that you, you grew up reading in the 80s were people who knew black people. Imagine that. <laughs> you know, I mean, there still probably weren't that many of them in the Marvel and DC offices, mm-hmm. but there were, there were now a couple, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Back when Stan and Jack were there, I guarantee you there wasn't anybody. Mm, you know, yeah, not not so much. Uh, you know? But going back to kind of your your roots and and your geek mm-hmm. roots, so you mentioned earlier uh, that you played Dungeons and Dragons, which mm-hmm. I recently got into. Only in the past few years, it was the one avenue of geekdom that I had not gone down, mainly because <laughs> I knew that once I started, I would fall into that rabbit hole deep. Yeah, it's pretty time consuming. And and yeah, now I play every week. Uh, <laughs> I work on my character. I've developed multiple characters. It it gets kind of crazy. But do you remember oh, nice. the first time you played Dungeons and Dragons? And what was that experience like? Um, I was playing back in um, well, because I was grew up in the San Fernando Valley um, mm-hmm. from like fourth grade on. Uh, before that, I was out in Inglewood. And in neither of those places was geekdom terribly strong. Um, it, yeah. it wasn't until I got into seventh grade at a private school that I found other nerds. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I remember we used to have like, you know, a, a pr- pretty regular um, game for a while until everybody uh, hit puberty and found girls. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it sort of fell by the wayside. My first character who survived long enough. <laughs> Right to you know get to a level that I still remember was a a fighter named Balthazar. Okay. Um, not sh- I don't remember where that name came from. I'm sure it came from like my science fiction fantasy reading. I mean, I had all the Conan books, mm-hmm. um, all of that stuff. The Elric of you know, I still don't know how to pronounce Melnibane. Um Yeah, that is I'm another one of those things it. where similar. You know, I talked about Hunger Games. When mm. Harry Potter first came out, and people were like, right. Hermione, that is how you say it. Because in, <laughs> in the books, it was like, Hermione, yeah, sure, whatever. Right. Well, and that was the thing is, you, well, one, you very rarely had anybody talk about it with. Right. So <laughs> you just read the words in the book, and you just guessed, you know. <laughs> Pretty much. It's Namor, the Submariner? <laughs> Question mark, yeah. Or is it Namor the Submariner? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Let's let's ask Magneto. <laughs> right. But now there are you know mainstream pronunciation guides everywhere. It's mm-hmm. Magneto, which is weird. You don't pick up things with a magnet. But no, it's actually fun to see this resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. and it's actually great because I'm now getting back into that nerddom myself with the project I'm, I'm working on currently. Um, it's actually just pretty close to launching. I'm working on an animated series um, set in a Dungeons and Dragons world. Really? Um, yeah. Now, is it set um, in like ba- the Forgotten Realms or something different? Something different. Okay. Um, it's basically, um, it, well, it's based on a webcomic uh, that my friend Terrell Hunt has been doing for, gosh, maybe 11 years called Goblins. Okay. And and the premise is, you know, those goblins, those little low-level, you know, monsters that you just mow down to get some experience so you can go to the the big dungeon. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Terrell's premise was, well, what if the goblins got tired of getting their asses handed to them and said, well, why don't we become an adventuring party and gain some experience and get some treasure and some weapons so we can defend ourselves? And awesome. so the adventuring party is just goblins. Okay. Now that and, sounds, I mean, it, you did an episode of Critical Role a while ago yeah. where all mm-hmm. of you guys played goblins. Right. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I think Matt was aware of uh, Goblin Goblins the webcomic, mm-hmm. but I mean, obviously that was you know just sort of taking that that spin on it just for a short time. But Terrell has been doing this and taking it into and built this amazing world, you know, where there are humans and there are monsters, but it's from the monsters' perspective. So in the human world, it's like oh, you know, so and so the Goblin Killer, mm-hmm. like. He's the bad guy in our world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's a paladin. He's, the, you know, ready to destroy all evil. Run! Here he comes! <laughs> you know? And so we've taken this world that Terrell has built, and my friend Matt King and I have adapted it into an, an animated series. And uh, we've got some, some of my uh, friends and uh, co-workers from uh, previous animation stuff that are are going to be lending voices to these characters mm-hmm. and um and we're really excited about it we're really excited and you i mean i noticed how carefully you you danced around you know people from other projects making sure not to name names i see what you did i mean i'm, <laughs> I'm not that new to this <laughs> well because um we're actually um gonna be doing a big uh a big launch thing and uh so i, I want to save the okay. surprise Gotcha. Now, do you have a, a date for this big launch thing so far? I know animation, of course, takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're hoping um, actually to uh, get it out. Well, to announce everything uh, the beginning of next month. Okay. So the beginning of September 2017, depending on when this posts. <laughs> this will be posting uh, next week. So. Oh, great. Plenty of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And one of the things that that I have learned while we were talking about, you know, D&D and our experiences, one of the things that that I have learned while playing recently is mm-hmm. that games like that, role-playing games, whether it's Pathfinder, you know, or D&D, right. really lend itself to becoming more creative, not just within the game itself, but outside of gaming, because it just gives you something different to do. Right. How do you think that helped you with your improv that you ended up doing? You know, it's funny because it was, you know, way before I ever did improv, but mm-hmm. it is that same sort of thing. It's taking the love of imagination that you get from reading comics, mm-hmm. reading science fiction, all of that stuff, most geekery, you know, but making it active instead of passive. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think it was definitely, you know, uh, certainly a stepping stone toward performing because this was long before I began performing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you say long before, because you said you started about seventh grade, but in high school is when you got your first voice acting gig on the, uh, shall we say, amazing, question mark, incredible, Mm. question mark, uh, 1983 cartoon of Mr. T, where you played Woody. Yep. So, (laughs) you... It was... (laughs) Tell me about that experience. It was a great summer job. So it was only um, one summer? Well, no, three summers, actually. Oh, okay, okay. I was like, I thought it went and, on for longer. 
Yeah, we did three seasons, um, and they had decided to use real kids, but to, you know, sort of mitigate the, um, the uh, time involved in that, they only recorded us in the summer when mm. we weren't on school, because if you record during a school year, then they have to get a studio teacher, and part of the time the kids are there, they have to be actually in school, gotcha. and they're like... We, tr- we try to make a cartoon. We're not trying to get involved in all of that. This is not Shakespeare. Like, no. <laughs> right. It's like, we want you here for four hours. That's it. You know. Interesting. What was it like then to go back to school in the fall and be like, oh, how was your summer? You know, I just recorded a Mr. T cartoon because at that point in 1983, Mr. T was the biggest name on the planet. Yeah, but. <laughs> oh, here, at- here it comes. <laughs> Well, the problem is, like, I think I was 16, 16 or 17 when we first did the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of my 16 and 17-year-old peers were not watching cartoons on Saturday morning anymore. Mm, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> so it had absolutely no social juice whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know? It, I mean, honestly, the best thing about it was it gave me spending money. Okay. You know, like I could, I could afford to like go to the movies and buy gas and do all that stuff Mm -hmm. because I, you know, had that job during the summer and it, you know, three grand, you know, for a 17 year old kid in 1983, that was good money. Uh, yeah, you could definitely say that, That, (laughs) you know, I mean, 1983, especially, but even now, like $3,000 for a summer job, nothing to shy at. No, no. No, it was great. So from then to now, as far mm-hmm. as I know, you still have not met Mr. T, have you? Nope. How do we remedy that? That is a crime. I know. Isn't it weird? I keep thinking that at some point I got to just at least cross paths with him. Right. You know, just has never. I've met Mike Tyson and still not met Mr. T. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know. Interesting. Okay. So when you were in high school already, you know, a working actor, you're going to a private school mm-hmm. and you're, you know, kind of deep into your nerddom, even though, yes, girls started to get noticed. Uh, <laughs> and there's this term that that those of us, you know, who grew up in certain situations uh, have dealt with called code switching <laughs> and where you kind of have to play a different role as it were and different manner of speaking how how did that affect you at that point and do you think it has kind of carried through into your professional life well you know what's funny um again another term that didn't exist true um although the thing certainly existed yeah um and i think for the generation before me um, it had a different name. It was called survival. <laughs> Very true. Yep. Cause you know, you know, speaking specifically as a black man, you know, you had to act a certain way in certain situations, mm-hmm. you know, in order to survive. Now in my generation, it was less fraught. And I think, you know, in later generations, it's gotten, you know, so like a days ago, we can put so, you know, sociology names on it. It's called code switching. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always been a part of my life. I mean, I, and I think most people who grow up as minorities 
because as a minority, you speak the language of your culture, ethnicity, mm -hmm. situation, whatever it is, and you have to learn to speak the that of the majority. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, that's where you live. Yeah. You know, so I think um, it's something that I think for, you know, African-Americans growing up in America, you know, in America, you learn it and you learn to resent it or not resent it or use it or not use it, but you, everybody can do it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's the Richard Pryor, like, I can do the white guy, you know. Um, right. And it definitely, as if you become a performer, mm -hmm. I mean, th that skill of speaking two languages, you know, definitely helps. Um, and for me, it manifested in, you know, when I was pursuing acting, because I would look at a role and decide, okay, who is this guy? What situation is he in? And how is he going to present himself? Because okay. that's what code, that's what code switching is about. Mm -hmm. How do I present myself in this situation as opposed to that one? You know, if I'm a, if I walk into a room full of brothers, like, yo, what's up? Hey, what's going on? <laughs> right. If you walk into a room full of, you know, you know, just white guys, like, yo, bro, what's happening, man? Hey, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, or if you, you know, just very, every situation can potentially have a different face for you to put on. Mm -hmm. And as an actor, oh, I you know, relish that. Um, almost too much really it got to the point yeah it got to the point where sometimes they would say just be yourself <laughs> wait, wait wait which one which yeah <laughs> you mean uh myself that i am in a room full of white producers or the myself that i would be you know as this character you know it's like be myself that doesn't help me you gotta give me something more which i would you have know? to think especially with I mean, when you look at actors who are always doing projects, you know, that is one thing. Doing voice acting, I think, would make it particularly difficult for you to then find your own personal voice. Because, again, in that same situation when they're like, just be more of you when you have been hundreds of different mm -hmm. voices and different characters over 30 years. Right. Well, but it's also, it's interesting because in both on camera and voice acting, there are two sort of paths mm -hmm. you can go down. Um, for me, like looking at actors, I look at somebody like Tom Cruise. Okay. Tom Cruise is always basically playing Tom Cruise. Yep. He runs a lot and does his own stunts. Yeah. But is it, it's Tom Cruise as a lawyer. It's Tom Cruise as a spy. It's Tom Cruise as a pilot. It's always Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. But then you look at somebody like Robert Duvall, mm. who disappears into a character. You know, Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now is unrecognizable from Robert Duvall in The Godfather. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you if you don't know, you can totally be, you know, excused for thinking those are two different people. Mm -hmm. And in voiceover, there's a similar sort of thing. Like there's, you know, those of us who... Are utility people. We do a lot of different sounding voices that are very different from each other. Then there's what they call the signature read. Okay. Now you get that more. You get that more in uh, 
announcers, you know, like, I mean, the, the biggest one is uh, Don LaFontaine. He was right. the guy who... Rest in peace. You know, yeah. You, in a world. You know, Don <laughs> had one voice, one read, <laughs> right. and and it did very well for him. Uh, extremely you know? well, yeah. And in um, in animation, you even have some of that. You have, you know, your Tara Strong's, who mm. is always something different. And then you have your Cree Summer, who can play 109 different characters, but they all sound the same. They all have that same essential creeness to them. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got a, a very distinct texture, you know. But, you know, as I learned on Samurai Jack working with Mako, oh. who again... Marco had a very distinct voice and a very distinct way of speaking, but that he didn't let that limit the characters he could play. Hmm. You know, he could change his angle, his perspective on a character without changing his voice. Wow. Which, which blew my mind because I thought, you know, I mean, I was doing the vocal equivalent of changing wigs all the time. No, I put on a red wig and I'm a different guy. Right. Like, no. <laughs> the Groucho Marx sunglasses and nose. You know? Right. And I realized, oh, I don't have to change my tone as much as I have to change my undertone. Hmm. You know, because I saw him do that. I saw him play a characters other than Aku with the same voice. But he came at them from a completely different angle. And it sounded like a different character. And Cree does the exact same thing. Even though she's got that very recognizable voice, mm-hmm. she's got hundreds of characters that are all distinct. With the field that you went in and have been extremely successful in, what were those voices that you remember from your childhood? Oh, well, it's, uh, you know, first and foremost is Mel Blanc, who I was mm. fortunate enough to get to see work. Um you know, before he passed away, I, when I was a kid, I went to a recording of a Captain Caveman session. Wow. Where he was playing Captain Caveman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got to see him in the room. Um, but, I mean, the characters that he did. And it, he's another example. I mean, I didn't find this out until many, many years later when uh, Warner Brothers was auditioning for new Looney Tunes mm-hmm. voices. And they put sent out a CD of examples of Mel doing the voices and Daffy and Sylvester are the same voice. Daffy and Sylvester. But, but Daffy is sped up. Oh, okay. Cause you've got, you know, Daffy is, Daffy is up here. Mm -hmm. Sylvester is down here, but it's the same lisp, you know, but they both have completely different attitudes. Huh. So you don't hear the fact that vocally, all he's doing is pitching one slightly higher. Mm-hmm. Because Sylvester's got a completely different attitude than Daffy, who's, you know, woo-hoo, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, it was not the voice, but the acting, wow. you know. Okay. So Mel Blanc, definitely. And anybody, again, we talked about IMDb. If you go on IMDb, you know, look at Mel Blanc's work. He was oh all over the place. For 30, 40 years. Although the other thing was, when I was a kid watching cartoons, mm-hmm. he was the only voice actor you knew. Yeah. Because there, no, 
there was no internet and there were rarely any credits. Oh, that is true. So like all of these guys that I learned later, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the Don Messicks, the Dawes Butlers, mm. you know, you had to dig deep, mm-hmm. you know, to find out who they were. And to this day, I still don't know what any of them look like. <laughs> right. You know, all those, all those guys who peopled those thousands and hundreds of thousands of hours of Hanna-Barbera cartoons mm-hmm. are still largely anonymous to this day. That is crazy to me. Yeah. Huh. I just think, yeah, Wacky Racers. Uh, right. All of the Paul. Uh, Paul well, Freeze, all those guys, yeah. Snidely Whiplash. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so with animation in particular, because, I mean, I grew up watching you on Mad TV. Oh, cool. And, again, it was just, even in that comedy space, because at the time when Mad TV came out, it came out and I think one of the best times for that type of show because at that same time you had In Living Color that was starting you had Mad TV, SNL like there was just such an influx at well, that now, 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 now be careful because th- this is the problem of the internet mm-hmm. is it collapses time Okay, because you know an old Macklemore song can, is found from the same touch of the button as a, a, a Caruso recording. That doesn't mean they existed in the same time period. Right. Um, in Living Color was off the air for about three or four years before Mad TV came on. Oh, right, because Mad TV was 95, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, th- and I think uh, In Living Color might have gone off, well, maybe it was only three years. I think they, I think they went down in 92. Okay. Um. But SNL, you know, of course, still going to this day. Uh, But SNL had been around. I'm trying to think if there was any other. Well, there had been a couple of primetime sketch shows. Uh, One, uh, The Edge, was on right before Mad TV, starring, weirdly enough, uh, Tom Kenny, uh, his wife Jill Talley, Hmm. and and a young Jennifer Aniston. What? Oh, I think I remember seeing clips of that show, but I don't think I have ever seen an episode. No, nobody did. That's why I was off the air. Well, um, fair point. And uh, tra- of course, Tracy Ullman. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That that had been uh, in the year uh, early eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, probably that was probably around the time of In Living Color. Okay, so that was when you know I first started seeing that type of show because even as a kid. I kind of knew what Saturday Night Live was, but A, there was no way my parents were letting me stay up, you know, (laughs) that late. But I always kind of, it was just such, it was so ingrained in just popular culture. Right. So then when things like In Living Color came out, and again, it was about representation, it was like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Uh, There's not just one person of color. There are six of them. And wait, they're all related? What is happening? What is this show? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was, and it was pretty groundbreaking um, at the time, although that groundbreaking was made possible by this weird uh, thing that they had back in the day. Like, basically, if you were going to launch a channel, Mm -hmm. you put on a bunch of black shows. Hmm. Because, (laughs) I mean, this was was the pre-internet model for, for launching, because... Black people watch more TV than white people. 
Interesting. Like per, okay. per capita. Yeah. So the quickest way to get an audience was to put black people on screen. Hmm. Then you establish yourself, start putting in some white shows, and then eventually get your white audience and kill the black shows. <laughs> Fox did it. UPN did it. Um, and now, of course, TV has broken down into such small segments that that model is gone now. Because, like, well, I'm not going to, you know, aim for a black audience. Nobody aims for a starter audience anymore. Right. You know, now you just go straight to your target. Because mm-hmm. we're only going to get, you know, a million, two million people anyway. You know, so let's put on, you know, cosplay heroes. You know? <laughs> right. And target your very, very specific audience in a very right. specific way. And just go with it as opposed to kind of that shotgun approach. Right. That you were talking about kind of in that 90s because it was uh, Malik Yoba in like New York Undercover. Right. Back then. So it was just, again, we were seeing a lot of representation, but I guess I'd never thought yeah. about it in that way that you described it. It was like, there was a reason that all of these shows that had a bunch of diversity were on around the same time on the mm-hmm. same network. Radio. New York Undercover. That's great. That's yeah. And it's funny because you wonder like, well, why wasn't a New York, under, New York Undercover on NBC? Because hmm. they, they didn't need it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, I think at that point, I think Homicide, Life on the Street was going on on NBC. Mm-hmm. So, well, and that's and that's where you actually began to see, because you know people always complain about diversity and how there's not enough change. And I remember as a young actor, you know, I, I came back to LA in the late '80s mm-hmm. to pursue my career, and I watched it change mm-hmm. from me going out for parts to play gang members because hmm. i mean in 1988 that's what i was auditioning for because wow. that's what there was you know <laughs> yeah to a point where you know what, what what you have now where if there is any group of people you know more than three mm-hmm. that aren't you know blood relations and maybe sometimes if they are you have to have at least one black person <laughs> right or a person of actually, and now it's expanded to the you have to have at least a person of some color. Mm-hmm. It's like it looks weird if you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, like Friends was the was the last of that breed. Yeah, and that I mean that that will be held as the example for a long time. Like, okay, they live in New York City. <laughs> How is it that Aisha Taylor did not show up until season like six? Right, exactly. Well, you know they they lived in. Uh, what do, they, what do they call it? The Allen Allen Heights, right? The, the Woody Allen part of New York. Mm-hmm. Where suddenly, you know. oh, this camera is going to get a person of color. Nope, go over here. Nope, nope. <laughs> right. Unless we're de- unless somebody's delivering Chinese food, you're not seeing anybody of color. Right. And then it sounds like when you came back to LA and you were seeing that change because one of the people also that I think of who was pioneering that change and really trying to was Robert Townsend. Yes. And he was somebody where growing up as a comics kid in, you know, the 80s and 90s, looking through comics and the ads for Meteor Man. You look at Meteor Man and the cast of that and you're like, this has every black actor and they were in (laughs) one movie. Like, that was crazy. Right. So, yeah. And I mean, he jokes about in one of his uh, it was Hollywood Shuffle when he talks about going to auditions 
and that same type of process that they were talking about. Like, we just need you to be more this. And, right. and him trying to kind of figure out, you know, what that is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, yeah, he really did um, break through in a great way. And I mean, it's funny because, again, diversity wasn't a buzzword then, mm-hmm. but that's what it was about. Yeah. And but but when Robert broke through, it was taking projects focused on people of color out of the ghetto. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I mean that figuratively and literally. Yeah. Um, figuratively in the sense that, you know, black exploitation movies mm-hmm. in the 70s were targeted at black audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were um, not considered on par with mainstream. Right. It was ghetto money. Mm-hmm. You know, this was just something that studios would do on the side. Um, he moved it to mainstream. It's like, no, no, there is an audience out there, you know, for this material. And it's black and it might also be white, mm-hmm. you know, and without having to water it down or change it I, and I think actually that um, Robert was, you know, coming off of the success of you know, like Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. you know, because Richard, um, you know, went mainstream, mm-hmm. but stayed, you know, for lack of a better term, black. Yeah. No, that, you know? that definitely uh, that that rings true. So other than kind of those those models and you getting back into the business and then obviously getting into the animation world, which just blew up and all of your work started going everywhere because right. animation, like we already talked about, takes so long to yeah. to finish from storyboards to then voice acting to then animation itself with a show like Samurai Jack, which again uh-huh. is one of my favorite cartoons of all time it was one of the most stylistically inventive shows when you were first recording for samurai jack what type of storyboards did you see and then what was your reaction once you actually saw a completed episode or a completed scene well actually um i was fortunate enough when we came in to do start recording the first episode gendy already had some finished animation. Oh, wow. He had done, he had done this thing that was basically sort of a proof of concept kind of thing Okay. to show, to show the network, you know, what he was talking about because what he had planned to do was so different from anything that had come before. Um, so he had what was basically the, um, beetle bot fight. Okay from from the uh the, the first um first kind of movie you know, that they did yeah mm-hmm. yeah those first th- those first three episodes and he had animated that just to show us you know a sense of the style and the level of action okay. that um he was he was intending hmm. so that had yeah. to be rare for you because oh, yeah. again <laughs> coming from the animation world you do not get to see the animation until much later yeah, I mean, you never, you don't see any animation until usually a year after you've been working on it. Jeez. You know, 
And it's really, it's, it's tough in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. you know, because you don't, the character isn't complete until it's animated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've been going down this one road, you know, vocally or, you know, emotionally or whatever. And it's not until I see what, you know, the animators are doing with their part of the acting Mm -hmm. that I really get a sense of who the character is as a whole. And it, and seeing it changes my performance. Definitely. Um, but with Samurai Jack, it was great because seeing that made clear what he was talking about in terms of style, you know, and there there was a lot of it, you know, again, it was so unique that I think it would have been hard for him to describe. Right. Um, and even then a lot of it was just trust Mm -hmm. like, okay, you tell me how to say it and and I, in a year and a half, I'll see what you were talking about. <laughs> and we will go you from know? there. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, that was the way we worked back then and on this new season. I mean, I trust Gendy and his vision implicitly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every once in a while you have an idea about, you know, something that feels a certain way. It's like maybe this. And most of the time he's completely open. It's like, oh yeah, let's try that. Hmm. Um, but then there are other times we'll say like, well, actually there's going to be this thing just trust me, make it a, make, I know you want to yell it, just make it quiet. Like, okay. And he's always right. Awesome. That has to be amazing to then work with the director for so long who just, you trust and they trust you with the material and with the performance to just let it happen organically. You have talked about your love of literature and just being a huge bookworm from an early age. If you could choose a literary character in an animation story, in an animation movie or project, who would that character be? I don't know. It's funny because so many of them have been done, you know, Sherlock Holmes. um, I mean, I think I would like to see um, a John Buscema Conan the Barbarian, like, in motion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's, that's the one that comes to mind. Conan. Cause I know that, I mean, you had talked about that before where you used to have all of those old books, those beautiful Frank Vegeta art on yeah. it. So that would be okay. That That is a good pull. I like it. And I would definitely love to see that. Uh, and then I will not ask what your favorite project is because that is impossible (laughs) especially when you have over 350 acting credits but what do you think is the project that changed you the most probably mad tv okay um because that was the one that first gave me a taste of regular work right um and um and gave because at least for that period of five years, I got to stop hustling as much, mm-hmm. you know, cause most of the time as a performer, as an actor, you know, your job is not acting. Your job is to try to get acting work. Interesting. You know? Okay. The acting work is the reward you get for, <laughs> you know, doing your job. Right. Um, and you know, having that space at Mad for those years, even though we were never a hit and it was never super secure, 
Um, for a while there, I got to relax and breathe and just sort of dig into myself as a performer and figure out, you know, how I performed, you know, because it wasn't just figuring out how to be a guest on this sitcom and then jump over to how to be, you know, a guest in this person's world. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to be home for a minute and go, okay, this is what I like. This is a process that works for me. And I think from that point on, how I approached my work was different, you know? Excellent. Okay. And to some of your current work, some of your current projects, you are still doing the improv troupe, uh, the black version, correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that is, is that a weekly show? I forget. Uh, no, it's monthly. Monthly. Okay. We, we, we do it uh, here in LA. Um, it's, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a cast of all African-American improvisers. We take a suggestion from the audience of a classic or iconic movie, and then we improvise the quote-unquote black version right. of that movie. You know, like the black version of Jaws was Catfish, you know? <laughs> wow. Awesome. You know, the, yeah, the, the, the black version of Mary Poppins was Rashida Popoff, you know? Amazing. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's so much fun. Awesome. Uh, and then I definitely am looking forward to whatever that future project is, whatever it is called, the Dungeons and Dragons it's, animation. It's No, it's well, it's called Goblins Animated. Oh, Goblins Animated. Okay. I was not sure if that yeah, was the official and, uh, title or if that was just kind of the... So Goblins yeah. Animated. Excellent. Yeah, no, that, that's the official title. Um, just the, the rest of the details are to come. Okay. Excellent. Well, maybe, you know, a couple months down the road, a few months down the road, we can do a follow-up and... See, oh, yeah. see the project is. Certainly. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, I, thank you for that. Yeah. And then uh, where can people find you on social media and get kind of the most up-to-date information of all of the projects that you that you work on? Um, I'm most active on Twitter, at mm -hmm. Phil Lamar. Um, and it's, all, it's my name, all one word, but two L's in the middle, two R's on the end. Mm -hmm. um, and I also have uh, my Facebook page, um, that I, I keep pretty up to date and my webpage, philamar.com that always has information about, you know, upcoming shows, appearances, etc. Perfect. Excellent. Well, again, as a, as a lifelong, uh, pretty much actually lifelong fan. Cause I, I grew up watching you and then seeing you in justice league, seeing you in Samurai Jack. I actually used to, because it was before it was right around when TiVo first came out, but I had no money for a TiVo. I used, to take, <laughs> I used to take VHS and record Samurai Jack. Uh, oh, no way. Keep in mind, I was not a child. I had already moved out of my parents' home. <laughs> but as soon as I saw the trailer for Adult Swim and all these things, I was like, this is happening. So I used to record it. And so to be able to sit nice. here and, and talk to you is is pretty amazing. Oh, thank you, John. That's very nice of you, man. Uh, so thank you again for coming on here. Uh, I will put all of the links to your social media in the show notes so oh, great. uh once again it has been a pleasure thank you for joining the show phil lamar thanks for having me thank you for listening to the about to interview podcast which is an about to review production make sure to click the subscribe button below give a thumbs up and check out the full show notes with links to the guests below as well as on the website about to thank you to my amazing guests and also thank you to Vexing Media, who provides audio and video editing services 
for this podcast. They are a graphic design, website design, and digital media company. You can find all of their work at vexingmedia.com, as well as on Facebook and Twitter at Vexing Media. Make sure to follow the podcast on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at About Treeview, and subscribe to the podcast About Treeview, which comes out every Wednesday.